My dad died in 1982, and after that I felt my mother was going to need some help. So I made plans to move to Clovis, New Mexico, where she lived, in 1985. And at that time, I began trying to find a church to attend. When I was on radio in 1980, I often spoke at a little church out on the Texaco Highway. And almost every time I visited my parents between 1980 and 1985, I spoke at that church. In the meantime, God showed me several problems in the faith movement doctrine, and this was a faith movement church. They were especially followers of Kenneth Copeland. After I moved to Clovis, the man in charge heard that I had moved to Clovis, and he called me. And he asked me not to try to come to their church group. He made the statement that he would not stand in the doorway to keep me from entering the building. But he wanted me to know I would not be welcome at their church group. They were strongly followers of Kenneth Copeland. And apparently he had heard some messages that I had spoken concerning the fallacy in the doctrine, the authority of the believer. Just as a brief summary, that doctrine teaches you that you have authority over devils, and if you will take that authority, a devil cannot bring a hailstorm against your house or any type of illness to your family if you learn how to take authority. God had shown, shown me scriptures which show hailstorms are from him, not from devils. Stormy winds fulfilling his word. Hail was one of those things listed. I saw several fallacies in that doctrine because instead of turning to God for help, it was professing that you could stand up personally against devils and speak basically to devils and command them to leave your property alone. Yet we have scriptures which say things like, Michael didn't even do that, Michael the archangel, but he said the Lord rebuked thee. I saw in that doctrine that people were being taught to be God, not to call on God, not to trust in God. They weren't ta being taught those things. They weren't even taught to seek the will of God, but rather to rise up and take authority and attack the devil and be God. And I know that's not right. So I suppose that this man that was in charge he wasn't actually a pastor they didn't have a pastor but he was in charge of that group and he wanted to make it very clear to me that they did not want me to come to their church now I would have never forced myself on any church group I've never done that 
I've only gone to places that have either invited me or where I thought the doctrines would work. I've never gone in to try to fight a church group. God tells us to live in peace. My dad often had a secular saying, which uh, was, if you go into a cafe to eat and the food's not good, don't complain, just pay your bill and leave and don't come back. Well, that's pretty much what God has shown me about the Antichrist churches today. It's not a matter of standing up and fighting them and trying to change them or trying to even prove to them that they're wrong. It is a matter of leaving, but then we have to warn the church itself concerning Antichrist teachings. But it's but I just live in peace, even with these churches doing what they're doing, because God has shown me this is the end times, and by the writing of Paul, he showed me these Antichrist churches had to happen before Jesus returns. If you will look with me at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you will see that this was all going to have to happen. So we don't fight against something that is going to have to happen. We just stay out of the way and don't go into those circumstances, into those places. So look with me at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and you will see that this had to happen before Jesus returns for the gathering of the elect. Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day of the Lord shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. In 1982, I was reading this scripture, and God spoke to me and said, The falling away are not people leaving the church group. The falling away are the churches leaving the scriptures. So Paul says Jesus will not come until there is first a falling away and that man of sin be revealed. And he is revealed by the falling away because the falling away from Scripture opens the door for Antichrist to come into the church. Verse 4, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. For hundreds of years, decades and decades and decades, churches have taught that Antichrist comes through governments of men and that there's only one Antichrist. That is not correct. The Apostle John tells us there were already many Antichrists in the church in his day, but they went out from the church because they couldn't change the doctrine. That, you can read that in 1 John chapter 2. In fact, we will look at that right now. It is verses 18 and 19 of 1 John chapter 2. John says, 
to the church. Little children, it is the last time. He shows us here that the last days really started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ during John's lifetime, during Paul's lifetime. The last days started that far back. Well, then why has it taken 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't returned? That is explained for us in the statement that a day in the Lord is like a thousand years. He doesn't look at time like we do. And a thousand years as one day. If you're looking at it that way, God's sight, it would only be two days since the resurrection of Jesus, not 2,000 years. So this kind of explains to us why they thought, the apostles thought, Jesus would return immediately during their lifetime. But this explains to us why the 2,000 years have passed since the crucifixion, and yet it was called the last days even when John was still alive on the earth. So in verse 18, John says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. There is not one devil in one man. There are many devils in many men. Antichrist is the same thing. Antichrist is a spirit that is in many men, and Antichrist fights the scriptures and tries to set up other doctrines. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, In the last days perilous times would come. And he said that men would wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but he told us to cling to the scriptures, which are able to make us wise unto salvation. This was going to come through the church. In fact, Paul talked to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And he told them that he knew he would never see their face again. But he said, some of you are just sitting there waiting to take over, to speak perverse things, to draw away disciples after yourselves. So Paul recognized, even while he was living, that Antichrist was at the threshold of the church group. And as soon as Paul was gone, he would move in, because Paul would not allow it to happen when he was there. When I lived in Clovis, New Mexico, there was another church I tried to attend called Potter's House. I called the pastor and told him that I was a minister, but I was interested in visiting his church. He came out and talked with me at my house. I can't remember anything we talked about, but there wasn't any overt trouble. We didn't have any f form of strife we decided that I would come and visit on Sunday morning, not to speak, just to visit. Because I was looking for a church that I could attend. I was so happy to, to think of being able to go to church. I went out and bought an appropriate dress to wear. On Friday, 
the phone rang, and it was that pastor. And he said to me, you know that thing about your coming to our church? I've decided that I don't want you to come to our church. I was pretty much dumbfounded, but I just responded, well, okay, and I hung up the telephone. A few days later, my doorbell rang. Some teenage girls were standing at the front of my house, and they had pamphlets in their hands. It turned out that they were from Potter's Church, and they were inviting people in the neighborhood to come visit their church. And I said to them, your pastor told me he did not want me to come to his church. Without a word, they turned and walked down the driveway. One Wednesday night, I decided to go to a non-denominational church that I had seen and passed by as I was driving from my house to the grocery store. I thought I would go to that church. The pastor that night was teaching from John chapter 8 about the woman taken in adultery. There were about 200 people in the congregation, and I knew some of those people from having lived in Clovis and living in Clovis. The pastor was teaching about the woman taken in adultery, and he said, and when she was brought to Jesus, she was naked from the waist up. I was shocked. That is not in the Bible. I knew it wasn't. I turned around and looked at the other people in the congregation. I didn't see anyone reach for a Bible to read John chapter 8. One of the men sitting in the auditorium had done some concrete work for, for me, and I saw him notice his face. He had a great big smile on his face, and I felt he was imagining what this woman might look like who was naked from the waist up. And I saw other people in the congregation, men with lustful smiles on their faces, and I was horrified. I took my Bible and reread John chapter 8, because even when we know something has been said wrong, God has taught me to take the Bible and reread it and just get it deeper in my heart as to the truth from the Bible. John 8, start at verse 1. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting Jesus, that they might have a way to accuse him. 
But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto the woman, Woman, Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now she couldn't continue to live as an adulteress. She had to repent. But he had not condemned her. But he told her, don't keep sinning this way. So that's an important point. Go and sin no more. But you will notice there's not anything in the Bible about this woman being naked from the waist up. That pastor just added that. I talked to the contractor who had been at that service. And he later told me that he talked to that pastor and said, why did you do that? And the pastor said, well, I don't know. It just came upon me. The pastor showed absolutely no shame for what he had done. Well, it ended up that the pastor wanted to hire a homosexual as choir director, and for that reason, that elder quit going to that church and went to another church. I called the pastor the day after that Wednesday night service. And I told him, I said, I cannot find in anything in the Bible that says that woman was naked from the waist up, as you told us last night at the service. And I would like to know where that is in the Bible. He was dead silent. And then he said, Well, I just can't remember where it is. And I said to him, Well, it's just very important for me to know this. So would you please look it up and tell your secretary where it is and have her call me and tell me where this is in the Bible? He was silent again, and then he shouted out, All right, It's not in the Bible. Where do you go to church? Well, I was trying to find a church to attend, but I was not going to attend a church where the pastor makes up things and tells the congregation these things as if they are really true and then tries to lie to someone when he is confronted with the lie that he has told. This is Antichrist in the churches. I was grieved because that pastor 
did not repent. He didn't show any sorrow at all concerning what he had told the congregation, concerning making up things and adding them as he did. And I just couldn't understand how this could happen, why he wouldn't be sorry and repent. Later, God called my attention to several passages in Revelation where Antichrist does not repent. Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. On one of the other plagues of Revelation 9.20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their own hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. They don't repent. They've been turned over by God to a reprobate mind. So they don't have any repentance in them. And that was the case with this pastor. And I've seen it in other pastors. I went to another non-denominational church while I lived in Clovis, New Mexico. USA. At that non-denominational church, the pastor was teaching the Sunday school class, and it was about Sarah and her handmaiden, Hagar. And the pastor said, Sarah and Hagar were half-sisters. I was shocked. I'd never read that before. Now, that's very easily something that I might have wrong. So, the next day, I took my Bible and read all of the passages of Scripture about Abraham, Sarah, and that handmaiden, Hagar. There is no word in the Old Testament that they were half-sisters. In fact, she was an Egyptian woman. Sarah was from one of the strictest of all the Hebrew tribes. It is very unlikely that she would have a half-sister who was an Egyptian, because these Hebrew men were very strict about marrying non-Hebrew women or having non-Hebrew women as their concubines. We have many examples in the Bible showing us the purity of the Hebrew race. So anyway, I call that pastor and I said to him, I can't find that in the Bible where it says that Sarah and Hagar are half-sisters as you were teaching yesterday morning. It's amazing, but he said the same thing the first pastor said. He said, well, I just can't remember at this point in time where it is in the Bible. And I said the same thing to him I said to the first pastor, which is, it's very important to me, so would you please look it up 
and have your secretary call me and tell me where it is. I'm very aware in the Old Testament, there are accounts in one part of the Old Testament, but over in Kings and Chronicles, that account could be repeated. I'm still aware I might be wrong, but I didn't think so. But I was willing to let him show me where it was in the Bible. He got very quiet, and then he became very angry, and he said, All right, it's not in the Bible. I never, of course, returned to that church either. I continued to hunt a church to attend. There was a very small building, which was obviously a church building, had a steeple on it. Very, very small building that was very near where I lived. It was a Church of Christ denomination. I decided on a Sunday morning to go there. So I went to the period of time where it was called Bible class. And then they would have their main service. In the Bible class, there were probably about eight people. And the man in charge was teaching the class. And he got to the scripture about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11. It is verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And then he said, this man said to us, Did Noah really condemn the world? I said, yes, Noah did, because he believed God and obeyed God, and the world did not. Everybody was dead silent. Apparently, this pastor was going to speak the opposite to that, but he didn't speak anything after that. Matter of fact, at one point I mentioned uh, something about pastor, so pastor, and he said, oh, no, I'm not called pastor. And I said, you're not? Well, what are you called? And he said, I'm just called minister. And I said, oh, okay. Later, I thought of Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 8. When he, Jesus, ascended up on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then I remembered long ago when I had attended the Church of Christ When I was very young, I remembered that they didn't call their ministers pastors. And I also remember somebody being a Methodist, and they called their minister pastor. And I thought, oh, you're not supposed to do that. 
We take in the teachings of these churches, often from a very young age, and the doctrine is incorrect. There is absolutely no reason to fail to call a pastor a pastor, or an apostle, or prophet, or evangelist, or pastor, or teacher. These were given by Jesus from heaven, and are still given by Jesus from heaven. They're called as ministers of Jesus for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now that verse 11 is written, and he, Jesus, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. At one point, I heard Bob Tilton suggests that pastor and teacher are given together to one person. I considered it, and recently I was thinking about that, and I remembered Paul. Paul identified himself as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And I saw clearly that pastor and teacher were not the same office. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul makes this statement, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So Paul was a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. But he was not a pastor. So by that we see that pastor and teacher are two separate offices for the church. They might be together as a man or a woman could have two offices. I'm called as an apostle prophet. Apostles deal with church doctrines such as this and try to bring truth into the hearts of the individuals such as you. When you are considering something like this, very often the truth is stated in another scripture and sheds light on the question at hand, such as, is pastor-teacher one office? Well, we see by what Paul said that it is not one office. It's two separate offices. And yet a person could be a pastor and teacher. But it all depends on how you're called by Jesus, how you're taught by him. So often scripture teaches truth about other scripture. And you have to compare scripture with scripture. Some people think, what does it matter? Is this really important? Uh, it's the foundation to salvation. Truth is the foundation to our salvation. If you do not care about truth, you're in ser serious trouble. If you do not care enough to look into it and you think it's unimportant, beware, you, you really are in trouble. We who are the elect of God care about truth. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Devils are liars, and there's no truth in devils. 
and they twist things. So, yes, we have to care about truth, and we do care. I care very much about truth on every point. Well, after I spoke this about Noah, they didn't want to talk to me at all, none of them. I didn't stay for the main service. I just left it and went home. I never returned to that church, of course. But I continued hunting a church to attend. One night I went to an Assembly of God church. This was during the period of time when Swaggart, Jimmy Swaggart, the evangelist, had been caught with a prostitute. And he got on his television program and he had tears streaming down his face and he said, I have sinned after he got caught with the prostitute and it was exposed. He didn't do that before he was caught. It was after, which tells you a lot. I know what Paul said to do with people like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if any brother is found to be a fornicator, Paul tells us what to do with him. We can look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 Paul says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. And he says, Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. I knew that scripture. So I sat down in this Assembly of God church, and the pastor opened the service by saying, We should all pray for Brother Swaggart. And I was shocked, because I know what Paul said to do about a brother who's called a fornicator. And out of my mouth, very softly, I said, he should be put out of the church. The woman sitting in front of me apparently heard that, and she turned and glared at me. I left that church group as soon as possible and never went back to that group. The leaders of the Assembly of God group decided to pray and counsel Brother Swagger. They paid no attention at all to 1 Corinthians 5 in the Bible. About two or three years later, Brother Swigard was caught again with a prostitute. And he made the statement at that time, the Lord told me it's flat out none of your business what I do. This is the body of Christ. If my toe does something bad and gets stumped, do you think the rest of my body isn't aware of it? and that the rest of my body isn't affected and doesn't care. The body of Christ is very much affected when one person in it sins. It is everyone's business in the body of Christ when sin is going on in a member of the body of Christ. At that point in time of the second exposure of swagger being with prostitutes, the second time it happened, the Assembly of God leaders defrocked him, putting him out of the Assembly of God. But they didn't do it because of this scripture 
in 1 Corinthians 5. See, the scripture is the key. By the scripture, we know what to do. We even know ahead of the time when someone's done it what to do when we read the Bible. And we go by the scripture if we are the elect of God. If you're just a church member, you can go by your own reasoning because you're not even born again. And things of God won't make sense to you unless you're born again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's those of us who are the elect of God, born again by God, by his Spirit, changed by God from the person we once were. We who are born again all know that we aren't the same person we were before God revealed himself to us. Thank God. We are different. We are changed. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any of you be in Christ... He is a new creature. All things are passed away, and all things are become new. And that's exactly what being born again is. It's being changed by God. It's not that you read the Bible and changed. It's that you were changed by God. He just spoke a word to you and changed you into a new creature. Then you learned specific details about living in godly ways. You learned those through the Bible, but before you were born again, and at the time you were born again, you were changed by God, not by man, not even by yourself. And change is the primary way you know whether or not you've been born of God, of the Spirit of God. If you're born again, you know you are different from the way you were before you were born again. Usually, After we are born again, what is it that we want to do? We want to read the Bible. We want to know about God. We go to church. We want to be around other people and learn about God and be with the fellowship of the people. This is a strong desire in us. But we run into these Antichrist churches today. They are basically all over the world, all around us you will see that they have changed the scriptures and you try to overlook it. You just try to say, oh, well, that really doesn't matter that that elder is single. A word of faith, the elder, one of the elders was a single man, a divorced man. Does that really matter? It matters very much because in the Bible, it says that the qualifications of the elder is that he be the husband of one wife with faithful children. Because if a man doesn't know how to control his own house, how can he control the church of God? That is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's also in Titus. So we had an elder at Word of Faith that wasn't married. He was divorced. I even knew that scripture at the time because I had been in Church of Christ as a child, and they taught that scripture, and I had remembered it. 
But I thought, oh, well, that's none of my business. That doesn't matter. And I was wrong. And in spite of my thinking, God had mercy on me and brought me out of that group. You can't ignore Scripture because the whole thing about Scripture is it shows us the way of God. Without Scripture, how do you know the way of God? People say, I know God would never do that. And they are talking by their own flesh. We see in the scripture that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because homosexuals came out from every quarter of the city to have sex with those angels that visited Lot. And from every quarter of the city of Sodom, there were homosexuals. And that wickedness arose before God. And we know by the Bible these things. We know what God thinks because we read it in the Bible. Genesis 13, 13 says the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. Genesis 19 shows the men of Sodom came out from every quarter to have sex with those two men who were visiting in Lot's house. We know Lot said, Oh, my brethren, do not such wickedness. We know these things by the Bible. And if you want to define homosexual lesbian, you go to Romans 1, which we'll do right now, Romans 1, verses 26 through 28. Don't just say, it's wrong according to the Bible. Tell the person the exact scripture not just the reference to the scripture, but the exact scripture. Learn what that scripture says. I can quote most of the scripture there. God turned them over unto vile affections. Let's read that scripture. See, we know what God's thinking is by the Bible, and we conform ourselves to what God thinks. Because he's God, and we are the elect of God, and we learn it by the Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 28. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God, in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. It is not what I think about homosexuals and lesbians. It is what God thinks, as is shown by the Bible. Paul said, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind to the Bible. That's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
recently I had a woman, a neighbor, who is probably a lesbian. She saw a very bright striped tennis wristband at my house. And she said, does that mean that you approve gays and lesbians? Well, I never called them gays. I called them homosexual. And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. And I sent her all of these scriptures in writing, mailed it by U.S. Mail to get her attention. I sent her all these scriptures I've read to you today. I haven't seen her since that time. You either go along with the Bible or you don't. And if you don't, you're Antichrist. She attends a Catholic church. If you don't go along with the Bible and let it rule, you are Antichrist. Those who go along with the Bible and present that are the people who are the elect of God. So you are one or the other, and you can decide which one you are, Antichrist or the elect of God. In hunting a church to attend at the time I lived in Clovis, uh, one of the churches I went to was Park Lane Baptist Church. This was just a standard Southern Baptist church. One of my relatives attends that church, and when she saw me come in the door, she came and sat by me. At the morning service, the pastor said, we are going to turn the service over to one of the teenagers who is in charge of the teenager group that just went on a retreat. And he's going to show you a video. So the teenager got up and turned on the video, and we saw teenage women with their hair in rollers, and young men were chasing them through the house. They had a towel rolled up, and they would flip them on their rear end, and they would giggle. And that was what the film was. There was not one thing in that film showing edification to God, showing us any edification. The Bible says when you come together, let all things be done unto edification. That is in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-six. Aline, as they were showing that film, said to me, I could do without this. I agreed with her. And then the pastor began to preach, and he said, he was at that passage of Scripture where Jesus said concerning a devil that they were trying to cast out, This kind cometh not out, but by prayer and fasting. So the pastor starts quoting that Scripture, and he says, This kind cometh not out, but by prayer. And very quietly, I said, and fasting. Amazingly, he quoted that scripture a second time. This kind cometh not out, and he said, but by prayer. And Aline and I both very quietly said, and fasting. And he quoted it a third time. This kind cometh not out, but by prayer. And again, we very quietly said, and fasting. You see, we are enforcing the Bible in us. That pastor was not using the Bible correctly. But we don't want to pick up what he did. So we are basically not trying to tell the whole room and fasting. We're just in our heart trying to reinforce what the Bible says 
so that we will not take into our heart what this pastor did by speaking the Bible incorrectly and leaving part of it out. I went to the evening service, and it was even worse than the morning. I can't remember anything was done in it, but I, it was really bad. And after the service, I said to the pastor, I, I think I need to make an appointment and talk with you. And he said, oh, well, I've got time right now. And I said, fine. So we went into his office. And I told him, I said, that everything done in the church is supposed to be edifying to the body of Christ. That thing that that teenager showed this morning was not edifying to the body of Christ. It did not build the body of Christ in faith. And he said, well, I liked it. And then I talked to him about the way he handled that scripture. And he got very angry. And he said to me, I've been doing this 23 years and I know what I'm doing. And I said to him, I think I've said all that I need to say. And I got up and left. Of course, I never returned to that church. But I continued hunting a church to go to. I decided I would try a little church over at Texaco, New Mexico, which is eight miles from Clovis. I called their pastor, and he came to visit with me, and we talked, and there wasn't any problem. So I decided to go there on a Sunday morning, and the pastor approved my coming to his church uh, just as a visitor. When I walked in the building, I immediately saw a photograph hanging on the right-hand side of the wall of the assembly area. It's that photo that the Catholics so often identify as being Jesus, that long-haired man in a robe that was hanging on the wall of the Assembly of God Church. I was horrified, of course. I said nothing at first. I sat down, and the pastor began talking. He didn't say one thing to us except Scripture. He simply read a list of Scriptures. I think he was terrified of my being there, and he was trying to play it safe. I left that church, but I did contact him about that photo and told him they should take that down immediately, that we worship God in spirit and in truth. And it's a terrible thing to have graven images and false representations displayed in the church. There were no photos at the time of Jesus. If God had wanted us to see Jesus in the flesh, God would have had photos invented. But the fact there were no photos at the time of Jesus, and they came along decades later and picked some actor to be portrayed as Jesus and then displayed it in front of the church, that's abomination. We don't worship God in fleshly ways. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus said in John chapter 4, the Father even hunts people who will do that, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It says, for God seeketh such that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So you mustn't put stuff like that in front of the church people. One time God said to me, these people love the religious symbols 
They love their buildings. They love their stained glass. They love their images. They love their crosses. They love their pulpits. They love their pastors. But they don't love the scriptures. And that's the key. Do you love the scripture enough to give up your life for it? Enough to leave all those church people? Enough to give up your friends? To give up everything that conflicts with scripture? Does that scripture mean that to you? At one point when Jesus was being taken to the cross, he said to Peter, Don't you know that I could call on the Father and he would send me twelve legions of angels? But then how would the scripture be fulfilled? It had been prophesied in the Old Testament. One person would die for the sins of the people. And the scriptures meant so much to Jesus, he was willing to die on a cross, which is the worst form of death they had at that time, and a great shame to hang on a cross. And yet, to fulfill the scriptures, he was willing to do that. And you want us to call ourselves Christians and think, oh, it doesn't matter about that one little tiny scripture. What does it matter? Unless we love the word of God more than anything else, we will not be saved. You think your name can't be taken out of the book of life? There was a very bad church in Sardis. Jesus talked about it in Revelation 3. And in verse 5, Jesus said to that church in Sardis, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I, says Jesus, will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Our name could be blotted out of the book of life. But I believe that the Holy Spirit will keep us to the end. Jesus says the time will come. It'll be so bad that if the days aren't shortened, no flesh will be saved. But for the elect's sake, the days will be shortened. He says that in Matthew 24. I don't think you would be listening to this podcast unless you either belong to God or are on the verge of belonging to God. We are to live in peace. We don't get up and protest against these other churches. You warn the body of Christ. I'm warning the body of Christ and informing the body of Christ. I'm not trying to inform the apostate churches. It's the body of Christ, the elect of Christ, that I am warning. Why? Because I'm a minister of God, called by God, an apostle prophet. And also, I know how much I suffered in trying to find a church to attend and seeing pastors desecrate the Bible. And over and over how I went to them and saw no repentance. And I understand the comfort I had in 2017, the year 2017. God revealed to me these things about Antichrist and how he had to come into the church before Jesus could return and how Antichrist would take over the church and pervert 
doctrine and change scriptures. And the congregation would go along with it, but it all had to happen. But when I saw it all had to happen, I was no longer grieved like I had been. So I know some of these things will help some of you in your grief over what you've seen at the churches you're attending. And the Apostle Peter told us how to live as we wait for the coming of Jesus. He told us in one verse of Scripture what we are to do. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, As you wait for Jesus, be diligent that you will be found of him in peace, not arguing and striving, in peace, without spot and blameless. But we do warn each other in the church. That is called exhorting them. To exhort means to urge one another with advice and warning, as I have done with you today and do constantly. Thank you for allowing me to speak to you today.